a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, one and all, welcome along to episode 121 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring former Liverpool footballer and inventor of the world's most popular football boot, Craig Johnston. Barnes cross. Oh, Craig Johnston. Johnston, who salutes the moment that may well have decided the destiny of this match. Oh, he's done well here is Craig Johnston. What a good finish. And he's had quite a night. What a star. Craig is a much-loved figure at Anfield, but this is a man that in many ways is so much more than just a professional footballer. If you have kids, this is the episode for them to listen to. I have no doubt it will expand their minds and thought processes as to how success can be achieved. And you'll hear at the start of the episode, I was a little bit edgy because this was a really unusual way for me to approach a podcast completely different to what I would normally do. You'll understand what I mean about three minutes in. I won't say any more at the moment. By the end of the episode, though, Craig had explained to me an approach to sporting development and skill acquisition, the like of which I have never heard before. His approach is extraordinary. It really is. It's been in my mind ever since we chatted. His way is unique, yet made complete sense to me. The other thing about Craig, his story. From being, in his words, an average player from Newcastle who was ridiculed on his arrival in the UK as a teenager to just a few years later becoming a professional footballer on a record transfer fee, you couldn't write a story like Craig's. It's like a fantasy story, except it happened. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind you confuse and want to know Mystery, what is to be So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Now, in this episode, you will frequently hear Craig say the following Anyway, long story short And um, anyway, long story short Long story short So anyway, long story short Long story short, it's gold It's gold because the long stories do not get cut short, as you're about to find out, and nor should they, because they are cracking yarns told in intimate detail. And you just keep thinking, he's stuffed now, but he isn't. Because Craig Johnston, whether approaching sport, life, his inventions, business, it doesn't matter what it is, Craig simply refuses to give up, which is what I really love about this episode. So many lost and left behind. No one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes I could bang on and say so much more, but I won't I guess it's better just to get to the chat However, this is an episode for all those out there Who refuse to be defeated For all those out there who think differently for all those who are filled with passion and for all those who dream bigger and bigger than big. This episode is what the Howie game strives to be. Enjoy the story of a man who has spent a life turning the seemingly impossible into the possible, Craig Peter Johnston. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I. 
Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that we've been discussing for a couple of years to get on the show. He left Australia and dominated English football during the 80s. He was a pin-up boy for so many people when we didn't see much football. He's an inventor and many other things. His name is Craig Johnson. He joins me on the Howie Games. Craig, great to see you. How are you going, mate? Very good, mate. Very good. Thanks for the uh, dramatic intro. Well, it's an intro that deserves a lot of description. At this stage, I'm going to hand over to you to explain what's occurred today because we've been discussing this on and off for a year and a half. I sent you an email at 10.30 this morning saying, do you think we can possibly tee this up at some stage? You can take over the story from here and just describe what's happened in the last 20 minutes. Uh, Well, I had a really, really important uh, Zoom conference and you know when you're in business, yes. businessmen say, we've got a Zoom conference. So then you go around and you unpick three or four th- other important things you had to do to do the Zoom conference. And then you turn up and you run around and you get dressed up and you put your new undies on and you're all re- ready for the <laughs> business conference, right? And then, then two minutes before the secretary says, I'm really sorry there's been an important uh, meeting that he has to attend, attend. Mm. and then you're like, oh, you know, I've rushed home, I've cancelled all my meetings, I've I've dressed up, right? And anyway, so um, I was so annoyed that um, I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do. Well, and then you sent me an email after I'd sent you an email saying, can you call me? That's the point. So I'm, I'm sitting there and I don't know what I was going to do apart from scream and shout and, uh, and say, that's why I hate business. And I'm <laughs> going to say this up front. That's why I hate be- dealing with um, sporting administrators. Mm. Anyway, long story short, I thought, okay, what's the good side in this? And then I was sitting there, must be a good side. And I, it wouldn't come to me, wouldn't come to me. So then I thought, oh, I'll check my emails. Anyway, I did. And there was a little one-off you saying, look, we've been trying to do this for a year and a half. When could we possibly do it? And then I immediately said, now, let's do it now. So <laughs> there's the backstory, and that's that's why we're on. And, and you, you said to me, how quickly can you prepare? And I said, well, it, typically I would read about you. I'd read your books. I'd read online. I'd watch videos, probably about four and a half hours work. And you said, well, can you do it in... 21 minutes, I think we decided on. So I have done 21 minutes preparation, but I'm excited by the challenge. But I've got to tell you, Craig, of the 21 minutes, I spent three minutes and 42 seconds of that watching yeah. the Anfield rap. Yeah, yeah. well, that's another thing I did in my spare time uh, when I had nothing to do. Liverpool FC is hot as hell. United, Tottenham, Arsenal. Watch my list and I will spell because they don't just play, but they can rap as well. So, well, let's let's talk about that right off the top. I'll get you back to where we need to go. But the Anfield rap, you're a, you're listed as a co-writer on that. How did it come to pass, and how big was it? Uh, well, it got to number three in the charts, um, <laughs> but it, it should have got to number one in the charts. But Madonna uh, brought out like a version. Oh, geez, you're stiff. You're stiff when Madonna drops that on you. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know, in England, they had. Um, an old tradition of doing cup final songs. And we were actually playing in the cup final against Arsenal. Uh-huh. Um, and um, anyway, long story short, so they're going to write a traditional song, you know, blue is the colour, uh, Chelsea is the name, we're all together, you know, football songs. Yes. So then uh, rap had just come to England. In fact, 
there was only one rapper in England, but I loved all the Run DMC and the stuff from um, from New York. I loved love my music, so I love that stuff. So I said to the boys, well, why don't I write a rap? And they said, what's a rap? I said, oh, well, it's when you say words rather than sing them, you know? <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, you, you're nuts, but, yeah, go ahead and do it. So, so I did it. I came up with the words, and the whole idea of the song was I would look around the dressing room, right, and uh, and everybody had a different accent. Yes. So there was there was three Scotsmen, Dalgleish, uh, Sunes and Hanson. There was um, a couple of Londoners, you know. Uh, there was some Scousers. Uh, there was some Irish. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what I did is I just wrote wrote a song in their dialects about them talking to each other. So I started off with two Scousers, which was uh, Steve McMahon and John yep. Aldrich. So they're walking down the street. And they say to each other in Scouse, all right, old oak, sound as a pound. I'm custy, la, but there's nothing down because the rest of the lads ain't got it sussed. We'll have to learn them to talk like us. All right, old oak, sound as a pound. I'm custy, la, but there's nothing down because the rest of the lads ain't got it sussed. We'll have to learn them to talk like us. <laughs> and then the, the hook was uh, walk on, walk on with hope. In your heart. Which also stole a riff from the Beatles. Mm. So this is way before rap was uh, was in England. I say there was the one one rapper, um, and his name was Eric B. Yep. So I wrote the whole thing. Yep. And then I said to the the guys, you know, and the hardest one was the Scotland, the Scottish people, because yep. their line was, uh, "We're Scot, we're Scottish lads, okay, the new, and there's four of us, and there's only <laughs> two of you. So if you want any trouble and you don't want a slap, you'd better teach us the Anfield rap." Okay, the new. And there's four of us. And only two of you. So if you want new trouble. And you don't want a slap. You better teach us the Anfield rap. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I know it's stupid. <laughs> no, but, it's but anyway, anyway it, it was all about the crack in the dressing room and... Uh, and then, um, what about you? Because you, you had a line. Because I, I, that's why I had to watch the whole thing to see when you popped up. Yeah, my, my line was probably the worst of the lot. But I was being political as well, because because Kenny Dalgleish kept dropping me. Yeah. So so we're all talking to Kenny because Kenny comes in on the on the video, um, and I said, "Well, I came to England with my Australian accent. I was trying to do an Australian accent, yeah. and like it, it, it just just doesn't work." When, <laughs> When an Australian is trying to do an Australian accent, it just doesn't work. So, well, I came to England looking for fame. So come on, Kenny, man, give me a game. Because I've sat on the bench, paid my dues and my fees. I'm pretty big down under, but my wife disagrees. Well, I came to England looking for fame. <laughs> anyway, that, that was just as stupid as the rest of it. And uh, it, it got to number three and everybody knew about it. Um, and then um, j- just before the cup final, I went down to um, to London and I met with Derek B and I said, well, look, here's the words, here's the riff and the music. Can can you mix it and pull it together, which he did. Uh, right. So when they say they co-wrote it, you know, uh, I wrote. and Okay. Yeah. 
Well, that that three minute and forty two seconds that I used in my twenty one minutes was definitely worth it after chatting about it with you. And I said, I actually said to you, um, Craig, I'm a little bit worried because I like to know what to ask and what to talk about, and I'm terrified of leaving something out that's interesting. And you said, about if you don't know, just ask. So we're very freestyle here. Played football in England, known as Australian, but born in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, my mum and dad uh, were Australian. Dad was from Cardiff, and mum was from Cessnock. And um, <laughs> dad uh, was a good sportsman. He was a good, really good tennis player, uh, but he loved his soccer. So um, he wanted to go over to uh, to the UK to see if he could make it. In Scotland, in particular, Johnston's a Scottish name, and my mm. grandfather came from Bonnie Rig, so I was second generation Australian. And, um, and then mum wanted to teach in London. So mum met my dad on the boat going over oh, to England. So gotcha. that's where they met up. Um, and that's why it's an, it, it's an interesting story. And mum said, well, look, if you struggle with the soccer up in Scotland, come down to London. They swapped addresses and, and, and what have you. And, uh, and dad got a, uh, he, he got a, um, uh, one or two starts with the first team, struggled a bit, went down to London, met up with mum. They got married and uh, had my older sister. Uh-huh. Okay. And then, and this is uh, going to be part of a, uh, the movie, the documentary I'm, I'm trying to put together of, of the story. Um, so dad was, and mum was staying in Fulham. So um, one afternoon, and dad would sneak into the football, right, because all the local blokes in the pub loved the fact that there's Aussie you know, loved soccer, so they'd take him to Fulham and what have you. So <laughs> mum, dad sneaked mum into Fulham during the week when there was no one there and they stood on the terraces, right, looking out over Craven Cottage, okay, and dad rubbed mum's belly, of which mum was pregnant, with, with me inside the belly and said, one day my boy will come back here and play football. No. Right, right? So, so what happened, mum... mum Mum had uh, my older sister in London. Then, then, uh, then on the way back to uh, Australia on the boat, they went via South Africa because you know flying was a big deal then, and and they didn't. And, they, and so, Dad worked for the Jewish in, in um, uh, Cape Town. He he worked for the um, the local Jewish uh, um, soccer team. Uh, he fixed their car so he could play for the team. And Mum's taught the local school, but that's where I was born. So when we were six years old, we came back, uh, they came back to Australia, to Cardiff, where, where dad's mum, mum lived. So that's where we lived for a while, was in Cardiff. So even though I was born in South Africa of Australian parents, I, I'm, I'm Australian. Um, so I was only there for six years. So that's, that's how that worked. Got you. Now. Yes. Years later, right, mm. and I know this is out of sync. No, no, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I was at Liverpool, right? And Kenny Dalgleish got really sick. He had some sort of uh, um, issue where he couldn't play. So last minute, they said, "Well, we, you know, we'll need a number eight. So they said, "What about Craig Johnston?" And I just signed for Liverpool. Okay, okay, so I wasn't there too long, and I could play Kenny's role. Nobody could play like Kenny, but I could play his role. Anyway, it got drawn, and it was the League Cup. In Fulham, at Craven Cottage, no. right? So Dad's prophecy when I stepped out on the field in Kenny Dalgleish's uh, number seven shirt, uh, 
you know, I had to tingle down my spine a little bit like I do now because that was Dad's prophecy came true right there on the spot. That is a fantastic story. We will get back to Liverpool to go back to the young days. Now, as I said, I've only done a quick bit of reading here, 16 minutes worth. There was one description, I read an article, so you're going to have to tell me if this is fact or fiction as we get to these points which I haven't properly researched. Were you going to nearly lose your leg as a young bloke or is that fallacy? No, no. It's uh, What happened was I had a very true... Uh, I was uh, first day of school, six years old. I was uh, coming back home and I got into a fight with, with a, a, another kid um, and I, I, I got beaten up pretty badly. Uh, and anyway, um, especially in one leg. And mm. um, about two or three days later, the leg got worse and worse. And about a week later, it's fallen up like a balloon. Uh, so the doctor had to come to the house uh, and he said, look, it, it looks like polio. And polio was a, a big deal back then and it looks like, uh, uh, you know, we're in big trouble. Um, so they took me to the hospital um, and the, the staff told Dad that, you know, we might have to am- amputate the leg. So Dad had to go home and tell Mum that story that we might have to amputate the leg. Um, and then about two or three days after that, uh, a doctor was touring from America um, and he was a, a, an expert in, um, in polio and he said, I don't think this is polio, I think it's osteomyelitis and if you let me operate, I can save the leg. So yeah, He uh, was just there like on a he tour? He was a touring, um, touring uh, physician lecturing on, on wow. polio and he said, I, don't th- I think it's osteomyelitis. So, so he did and to be honest with you, just to... Uh, yeah, I'll show you. And the, the scar. Oh, geez. Can you see it? I can. It's a big scar. So we're talking a, a 30 centimetre scar down your left uh, quad. Yeah, well, when you're six years old, yeah. that's a hell of a scar. And, uh, and, and what the doctor then said is, well, you know, you can't uh, play team sport. You'll have to uh, surf and or play golf, but you're not allowed to play team sport. So, um, so I went back to school uh, uh, in, in, in recovery mode on crutches for three or four months and uh, I couldn't wait to uh, sort of get the cast off because it was a big cast and, uh, and start running and jumping and uh, playing again. So at what stage did football grab hold of you? Obviously with your father it, it was a big part of what he did when do you first remember getting out there and kicking the soccer ball in what is a rugby league sort of area where you are and it start to really take over your mind and your heart and your soul? Well, it had already done that in the hospital because the year was 1966, black and white television. Oh, the England World Cup. And the World Cup was on in England at Wembley Stadium and that oh. that is the last time England has ever won anything at any international yes. level at, 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 at the seniors. So you were watching that in the hospital? So Yeah, it was, it, it was on. It was. <laughs> Clearly it wasn't live. It was via no. all the, the transmission methodologies or lack of back then. Racing to beat the whistle, Jeff Hurst saw an opening in the defence and achieved the hat-trick. But um, it was cine film and news and the famous Charlton brothers... Right, mm. Bobby was the captain and the star, 
and uh, his, his brother, Jackie, was the centre-half. So the Charlton family were running the England World Cup show. Bobby Moore led England up to the Royal Box to receive the Jules Rimet Cup and the winner's medals. To be here as winners of the FA Cup has often been described as the summit of a footballer's ambition. How much greater was the triumph they enjoyed now. And that's when I fell in love with, with football. And uh, So it grabbed you. It, watching that, it grabbed you, yeah? It was like magic. How does anybody, how does Wally Lewis or Peter mm. Sterling fall in love with rugby or Nick Farr Jones or Steve Waugh fall in love with cricket? You watch it when it's young. Uh, how did you fall in love with your sport, Howie? Yeah, watching it, watching Richie Benno and watching Alan Border, and I can picture it clearly, listening to Richie and watching Alan Border and being so invested, Craig. But bingo, it, 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 it just took your imagination and, uh, yeah. and, and made you dream that one day you could do that. And that's what was happening to me. But for me, it was forced in a hospital bed with possibly my leg coming off. And I do remember a, 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 a nurse called Nurse Karen Right, and she's, she, she felt sorry for me, especially given the early diagnosis, right, and she would come round and, you know, give you ice cream, whatever, whatever was going on, and she said, um, what sport do you think, if you save the leg, will you play? I said, no. I said, I'm, I'm going to England, right, I'm going to be a soccer player like those guys, you know. I'm going to be the best player in the world. That's what I said to her. I'm going to be the best soccer player in the world which I failed miserably, but at least I play for Liverpool. Anyway, years later. Not a, bad, not a bad description of a failure, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where I fell in love, mate. And from that day on uh, uh, or that uh, yeah, moment on, uh, it was always in the back of my mind that's, that's what I wanted to do. And were you, it's really made me smile, that description, when you're saying, you know, how you fell in love with it. Were you naturally way more gifted than any of the other kids or were you gifted and you worked hard or a combination of both? Uh, well, I definitely wasn't more gifted than um, than the other uh, blokes in my team. And when I say my team, mostly Burrigal High School uh, where I went um, and we just had a 40-year re- reunion, uh, <laughs> in fact, a 45-year reunion, and I hadn't seen some of those players in my team. We won the Tasman Cup, by the way. Right, and Burrigal was a famous, you know, a Newcastle, Lake Macquarie team. What was the Tasman Cup in uh, uh, Sydney and New South Wales? Or? Statewide high school soccer competition. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, We'd gotcha. We'd won it uh, earlier back in, um, back in 67, 68, you, you know, just after the World Cup. So then there was all these names like Barry Boslam and the Baldwins and uh, there was a bloke called Reggie Date. So my dad knew all of these names and as long as I lived, my dad never, ever called me Craig. He always called me Reggie after Reggie Date, who was his famous <laughs> uh, centre forward that played play for Walls End up here. Reggie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Reggie or Reg, you know. <laughs> How you doing, Reg? Uh, the occasional champ. When he called me champ, it was like, oh, you know, like this, you know. But, but, but to this day, my dad, he passed away now, but he, he called me Reggie all, all the time. So I grew up with all these legends, but especially Burrigal High School. So when I got there to Burrigal, um, I just wanted to be one of these, you know, great, great soccer players. But in my team, the under-13s and 14s, there's two or three or four players better than me, right? And I saw some of them the other night, but... They were actually better players than me when you say a gift. Mm. But I was a, because of my leg, when, when I got fit, I, I, I ran and ran and ran. I kept running because I didn't want to stop, you know, because of what had happened to me. A little bit fl- frightened. Well, got a 
what's it called, skeleton in the closet. Mine yeah, was, okay. I don't want to stop running ever. They asked me to get up and say a few words the other day, which was quite emotional at this 45-year-old Burrigal High School Tasman Cup winning team's reunion. Mm. And uh, it's it 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 emotional for sure. And I talked about this and um, I talked about the fact that uh, when I first went over to England, right, my parents had sold their house to finance the trip. And I said to mum and dad, I want to go to England, I want to go now because I used to watch um, Match of the Day every Monday night. It was the only English show on television, black and white. That's it, that's it, that's it, mate, that's it. Um, so we sang that the other night. I started it off and they joined in because you remember it and that was yeah. the English soccer show. So so I'd watch that on Monday morning. We'd all get and we'd all gather and we'd all talk about Bobby Charlton and Leeds United and Nobby Styles and this one and that one and how we we wanted to be like them. And that's why we were so good because our school had a soccer culture. And as mm. you pointed out, um, is is this area was all, and why it's called Newcastle is because the Geordies in Newcastle, England, came over here and founded mm. it with the Scots and the Welsh mining pit villages. So we've got Scottish named towns, Irish, Welsh, and north of England, Newcastle. Okay. And at the pit, at the head of every pit mine is a soccer field because when they came out of the mines, that's what the old English people and Welsh and Scottish did, played against each other. That. That's why we're that. such a great footballing town. Okay. Long before rugby came. Anyway, long story short, I said this in front of the guys because they knew it. What my mum said, because she was a school teacher and mum had taught some of those kids that are now 60 and 70 years old in that room, mum had taught them. So what a legacy. What a mm. legacy. Mum mm. said, well, no, I'm, we can't pay your fare. We can't afford it. And then she came back to me. And she said, well, hang on a sec. She said, if you come first in science, maths and English, she said, we'll pay your fare. Good, Mum. Good, good by Mum. Good, smart move. So not <laughs> thinking for a moment, not thinking for a moment that I would ever study that much, I did incredibly well in all of my exams and came second or third or, you know, right up near the top in all of them. So they had to fulfil their side of their promise. So they sold their house and moved to a smaller one to, uh, to realise my dream. Did you understand the enormity? You probably can't at 16. Do you understand what your parents were actually doing for you at the time? Like I know you would now, but as a 16-year-old, could you understand that? Well, well, I was more 14 when all of this was going on. Okay. I didn't leave till I was just 15. So I went as a minor. I wasn't 16. So so this is the, the point I was getting to is, is, is the fact that um, – when that penny dropped for me to answer your question, the enormity of, of this. The sacrifice. Well, their sacrifice. Then why I was really embarrassed, almost ashamed, is because I didn't believe that I was good enough to have that opportunity because Treads and Cowby and uh, Malcolm and a bunch of blokes also in Newcastle, a guy called Lloyd Hards, uh, Joey Senkowski, these were brilliant footballers, much better than me. So I was ashamed to tell anybody, so I didn't. I didn't tell anybody. I just hid away, right, and then when it time to came, I just slunk off, right, and that's how I got to Middlesbrough on the other side of the world. 
Back to Craig in a moment. Next up on the show, one of the most storied fighters Australia has ever produced, Jeff Fennick. In some ways, this is a historical account of Jeff's life and times. In others, it's a really reflective look at fame and fortune. You know, when everybody says, oh, I still remember I'm from Maryville, I haven't changed. That's bullshit. You know, we all change. Fame and fortune changes us all. Yep. And if I go back, if I turn the clock back to that guy who was three-time world champion and then the guy who went to America and fought Azuma Nelson and I got in the draw, I don't even like him. Yeah, yeah, you think that you're bigger and better than other people. And like I said, um, I don't know if that's another reason why I want to be who I am today, but I don't, I don't like that guy who I was back then. You know, at this stage of my life, I'm just, I'm blessed to be able to still be here and, and, and give back and let people know that without them that I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be seeing this beautiful home if it wasn't for the people who paid to watch me fight. Yeah, I like to think that um, at every opportunity I get that I see somebody that mightn't have what I have or the opportunity to have what I have, I'd like to change their life. So when I, every night when I go to a restaurant, if I see somebody drinking something that, that I think that I've got better, I'll send them a bottle of mine. Look, I've made friends because of who I am, of course, but I want them to think that, wow, this guy is the real deal. He's not stuck up. He'll, like I said, I'll sit there and talk to anybody, um, take a photo with anybody. None of that stuff bothers me because, like I said, uh, without without the people, who would I be? Nobody. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be known. That's Jeff Fennick next up on the show. All righty, let's get back to Craig. So tell me... Did you go by yourself initially? Yes. So, so how old were you? Fifteen. You, Just fifteen. You're fifteen. Well, you jumped on a plane. Yeah. And and you get off in the north of England. No, I got off in London. You've been there. Right. Okay. So you get off <laughs> in London. Train, uh, fine out of train. Couldn't understand any accent. You know. So yeah. what? I spoke to a few footballers, and this is why I'm fascinated. John Aloisi talks about going to Belgium and thinking he's getting sugar on his cornflakes and he's put salt on there because he doesn't understand the language and how he had nights where he was crying in his room because he wanted to go home. How was it for you arriving in the UK? What are we talking, the late 70s here as a 15-year-old? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing I did in London, it was snowing and freezing uh, and I was starving and jet-lagged. The first thing it is I, I, I found a, a little coffee shop and I ordered some breakfast and I put salt on my cereal. <laughs> It's true, true story. So it's just the same as Johnny Aloisi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was the second one? Uh, um, oh, he was crying. He was crying okay. and because then I, he missed then, his family. Then, then I cried, cried my eyes out. So you get Did to you? London, you put salt on your cereal, and then you cry, and what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. Right, but I had to get to Middlesbrough and I'd missed a train, so I had to ask someone, right, um, and they couldn't understand what I was saying and blah, 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 <laughs> and then he said, uh, Cockney bloke, you want to go to Middlesbrough? Middlesbrough? Well, you're at the wrong station, aren't you? You need to go over the other side. Oh, you need to get on the tube, know what I mean? And I'm saying, oh. but what, what's a tube? <laughs> you know, said, Are you stupid? What's that tube, you know? You know and, and I, so this carries on. So anyway, um, he says, I'll take you down the tube. So he, he takes me down the tube, right, and then he says, get off at this place called Charing Cross or whatever, you know. So. Okay. And then so get off at Charing Cross and then um, a nice woman comes up and I says, look, do you know how to get to Middlesbrough? 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 What are you going to Middlesbrough for? <laughs> well, I want to be a soccer player. What's a soccer player? A football. Uh, oh, you mean a footballer? <laughs> you ain't no footballer. You ain't no footballer. Anyway. So anyway, mate, it was hilarious. I, I get up to uh, 
uh, Middlesbrough, get off the train, and then um, I, I, uh, I have to head for a place called Ayrson Park. Same story up there, different accent, but snowy like you wouldn't believe. Oh, cold up in the north, cold up in the north. Yeah, yeah, freezing, freezing. So, so I, I, um, I got to somewhere called Ayrson Park, which was the old ground, um, and I said, look, they said, who are you? Uh, and I looked like I had beach blonde, you know, surfer's hair. Yeah. You know, with the ringlets and uh, the raster almost. <laughs> and they, they thought it was the wild man from Borneo. And that's what, that's what they originally called me. They said, the wild man from Borneo. What, what do you want? What do you want? You know? Uh, and I said, well, I, um, I've come for a trial. You know, here's my letter off uh, Jack Charlton and Harold Shepherdson. They said, oh, wow. hey, you're a trialist. The trials are on today. You're running late. I said, oh. you know, where are they? They said they're at Hutton Road. And it was pouring with rain and snow, a combination, and it was getting dark. And, and, and they said, it's at Hutton Road, you know, and waved me away. And I thought, what's Hutton Road? What's Hutton Road? Stopped a cab. Can you take me to Hutton Road? What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they don't understand you. <laughs> Hutton Road, Hutton Road. You've got to ride at Hutton Road. Why, man, why didn't you see that? <laughs> I <laughs> Why I did see that man. <laughs> so you got to speak like them. So, so anyway, okay. he said, "What are you going there for?" I said, "I want to be a soccer player." What's that? <laughs> I know I'm making this a longer interview than it should be. No, I've got all the time in the world. You're the one with the with the business Zoom meetings, not me. Anyway, anyway, we might have to do this in parts because it's taking too long. Anyway, stop laughing and I'll get on with it. But anyway, the uh, the, the the bloke then is really really nice. All right, drops me off, and they're already having a trial. And guess who's at the trial? Who? And managers never, ever go to the trialist game. And there's kids there from Scotland, kids from Ireland, kids from Wales, kids from Londoners, right? All, there's about 100 trialists all trying to get one or two spots on the, on the apprentice roster for Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, a first division team, they were mm. about mid to top table, you know, okay. about two thirds down. So, you know, it was a good story. So anyway, um, uh, Never do managers turn up, but guess who's overseeing the trial? Who? Jack Charlton. No. The manager. Yes. Yes. So Jack Charlton's there, and uh, I've sort of, uh, you know, and he's shouting with his big Geordie voice, and uh, he's got this really long neck. He's a huge man, Jack Charlton, and really fearsome looking. So anyway, long story short, I've gone to the dressing room because there were some other officials standing there with their suits on, I said, oh, g'day, my name's Craig, Craig Johnston. Uh, I've come for a trial and I show him the letter of, of Jackie Charlton, right, and Harold Shepherdson. And I said, oh, here's one off Harold Shepherdson. And the, the bloke took it off me and he said, oh, yeah, that's good. He said, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was, that was Harold Shepherdson. And Harold Shepherdson yeah. was a, quite a famous uh, a coach in his own right and was, funnily enough, under Don Revy, listen to this, Mm. He was assistant coach under Don Revy of the team that won the World Cup in 1966. That you were watching back in your hospital bed. Yes, yes. So now I've got two of the most famous coaches in England right in front of me and I'm thinking and I'm jet lagged, right, I feel sick. You know why? Because I've still got the salt in my stomach from the, the, the cereals. Right? I feel like, <laughs> and I'm nervous, so I feel like I want to bring up. He said, oh, he said, he said lad, you've, you've travelled all the way from Australia. We better get you on the field. 
<laughs> so anyway, the, they've kind of made a bit of a deal about this and pulled one of the other kids from Scotland who wasn't very happy off. No. And stuck me on. And, mate, I got this raster hair. I got I got boots that mum bought me two or three sizes too big because she thought I'd, I'd have to grow into them. <laughs> We've all done that. Anyway, anyway long story short, uh, first time I, I, I got the ball, it came to me. I, I miscontrolled it. Um, the second time came to me, it, it hit my foot and bounced up and hit me in the chin. The third time I got it, I controlled it nicely. And this little uh, Welsh kid just scythed me from the back and nearly broke all of my bones, right? Mm. right, Because he was the defender and he was clearly had to show off to Jack and everyone else. Mm. Um, and he, he caught the side of my leg and it was the blood was gushing out of it because studs used to have nails in them. The leather studs used to have nails in them. Anyway, so I, I've miscontrolled the ball twice and I've been scythed down because I wasn't quick enough because these kids were good. Mm. You know, these kids, I was 15 and these were like 14 and 15. So long story short, um, I got the ball a few more times and mispassed it and miscontrolled it. And, uh, you, you know, but, but I made sure I got rid of it before I got hurt again. Anyway, we're getting beat 3-0 at half time, And Shepardson was going mad, but then Charlton banged the door open and he was fuming. He was fuming, bright red with rage. And he had a look around the dressing room. He said, you're rubbish. You're hopeless. You're shit. He said, you're ridiculous. He said, you. He said, mate, where are you from? I said, uh, he said, what's your name? I said, said, my name's Craig Johnson. I'm from Northern New South Wales, Australia. He said, you are the worst footballer I have ever seen in my life. Now, I was like shocked. And I think, I think so was the rest of the dressing room. Yeah. And I said, what now? Meaning half time. He said, now, hop it. But he didn't say hop it, you know. So I just looked around. I was so embarrassed. So I uh, packed my little bag. My raster hair had mud. My face had mud and snow and I was drenched. I packed my bags, went outside, closed the door, right, and it was still pouring down with snow and rain. I burst into tears again. And that was it. That was my trial. So now you've said a couple of times to cut a long story short. Yeah. So how do you go from walking out at half time to all of a sudden playing senior professional football for Middlesbrough? Uh, like it's a pretty obvious question. I might not have done my research a great deal, but that's an obvious question here, Greg. It, it's, it's an obvious question and I'll give you the straight answer. Go the on, straight please answer do. is I told you I was uh, good at science, maths, and English. Yep. And I knew 100% that Jack Charlton was 100% right. I couldn't control the ball, pass, dribble, or shoot. Gotcha. Like those other players. And I also, this is over the period and the time, I looked at that ball as a perfect object mathematically. Right? It's actually called a truncated truncated icosahedron if you look at the, the uh, soccer ball is the hexagons and the pentagons and okay. how they into a perfect object what's it called a truncated icosahedron okay so there's a standard number of, of panels the black and the whites pentagons and hexagons that make up that perfect object so i said to myself the football is a perfect object it doesn't make mistakes the person using it makes the mistakes 
And the more you use it, the less mistakes you make. And all these players from all over the place have been working with this ball since they were little kids as part of their culture, their upbringing, like you did with a cricket bat and Steve Wall, right? So I'd missed out on all of that because of the hospitalisation and travel and and all of that stuff. So the, the straight question is the game of soccer for 90 minutes is all about how quickly you get the ball and how quickly you give it and how accurately you give it. And every time a player actually makes a mistake at every single level is because they don't control it quick enough or accurately enough and they don't give it quickly or accurately enough. And, yes, across the disciplines of control, pass, dribble, shoot, mm-hmm. a header can be a pass or a, a, a shot. Um, and A knee can be a pass or a shot. But it's all about speed. So I figured that out. Um, but that's, that's over a, you know, a year and a half, a two-year period. Um, but I was giving you a straight answer to a straight question. Yeah. Now, I grew up on the old um, philosophies and, and adages of the likes of Don Bradman, and rather than using a cricket ball and a cricket bat, he used a cricket stump yep. and a golf ball and a corrugated iron. There was another guy called Emil Zadipek, who was a famous mm-hmm. Czechoslovakian runner who would train in gumboots, and he would fill his gumboots up with mud and then you'd do a half a marathon, right, every day, right, in the wet in Czechoslovakia. So when it come to race day, you'd take the gumboots off and it was like running on air. you go forever. So what did you do? So you asked me a straight question, how do you go from being the worst player that mm. someone's ever seen mm. to the most expensive player in British football history when Middlesbrough sold me to Liverpool? Yep. Um, by using my brain... And, and actually um, using science and maths to reverse engineer the process of skill acquisition. Huh. And that's the easiest way I can, um, I coach myself is the answer. But the, the story is much more romantic and tough and hard if I told you the full story, uh, which I'll get, I'll get to, sir. I've told you the, the end goal there. Yes. But, but the thing is that I didn't, when I slammed the door, or they slammed the door on me, yeah. and it was pouring with rain, I burst into tears, and I didn't know where I was supposed to be going. I didn't know where the digs were. So uh, I, um, I was going to go back to Ayrson Park and, and sleep there because, I mean, I, I could have slept anywhere because of the jet lag, and now my, my knee was still bleeding, so my whole leg was covered in blood, right, but I had mud all over me. So now I'm waiting on a street corner in the snow and the rain 12,000 miles away from the beach I left two days before in Nobby's Head, which I can see from here, <laughs> right, with, with, my, uh, with my mates and, and, and friends from Borugal High School. So, you know, uh, so I thought, what am I going to do now? So I, I, I was waiting on the street corner and then a taxi came past um, and I waved and waved like that and, and uh, he didn't stop. And then another one came past, you know, half an hour later, I waved and waved, didn't stop. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was then going to ask someone, where's Ayrson Park, and walk back there. But the taxi must have said, that's strange, and he came back. Because when do you see someone covered in mud and blood? At that age. Yeah, 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 you know, with, with ridiculous clothes on from Australia. Because I looked so different, you know. <laughs> you know what it's like, you've been to I London. Especially when we, 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 you know, we, we got our, what's it called, our uh, flower Hawaiian shirt on. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the yeah. middle of winter in England, you, yeah. you stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the thing is that he came back 
And he said, what happened to you, lad? And I said, well, I just got tackled. He said, tackled by whom? Jack the Ripper. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, the thing is, he was like, what the hell? And I said, no, I was just trialing with with, um, Middlesbrough Hutton Road and um, Jack Charles was there. Jackie Charles was there. Jackie bloody Charles was there. What did he say, lad? What did he say? Oh, yeah. he said I was really good, you know. So uh, <laughs> he might get get in, get in, get in the back here, get in the back here. So anyway, I got in the back. He said, "Where are you going?" I said, "I don't know." I said, "I don't know where I'm going." I said, "Can you take me to Ayrson Park?" He said, "Well, if you're that good as you tell me you are," he said, "They'll uh, they'll put you up in the digs, the Medhurst Hotel." And it came. I said, "That's where I'm going. That's the digs." He said, "Yeah, I know where the Medhurst is. Forgive my Middlesbrough accent. It's Sounds good." Anyway, so uh, so he said, oh, bloody Jackie. Tell said, what's your name, lad? He said, so I remember it. Uh, I said, it's, it's Craig Johnson. Where are you from? Northern New South Wales. He said, well, there's a lovely lady in there called Nina Postgate. Give her my love. So anyway, he dropped me off at this big old-fashioned. It looked like, uh, uh, like a haunted house, like a three- or four-story brick, you know, like the old mm. English houses are, but, but it looked haunted. Yep. You know, it really did. Like the Adams family. You know, the Adams family lived in this. I do. Yeah. Anyway, so it was like that. I knocked on the door and, and this lovely little lady looked at me, said, my God. She said, what happened to you? I said, oh, I was just a bad tackle. She said, are you one of the trialists? Did you get through? And I was going to lie and say yes. And I said, I said, no. And I, I burst into tears. I said, no, no, no. I said, Jack Charlton said I was, I was crap. And uh, she said, well, come in. We'll get rid of that blood for you, you know, so. Anyway, she came in and lovely old lady got rid of the blood. She said, I'm sorry, son, you can't stay here. This is for, you know, the trialists oh. to get through. I said, yeah, I know. I, I said, I, 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 the, the taxi driver brought me here. And I said, uh, I said, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know where to stay then. I, I said, because I've only got a one-way ticket and I got nowhere to sleep and nowhere to stay and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, she said, well, look, she said, they'll be back in an hour. I'm going to give you some beans on toast. She said, look, go and wash yourself, right, and, and clean up. I'll, I'll make you some beans on toast, um, and then you'll have to leave. So anyway, I did, and I had this beautiful melted cheese with beans on toast. I mean, it was just, I can taste it now, just glorious, because I was starving, I was jet-lagged, I was bruised and battered, and I know my parents had uh, sold their house. And... Uh, that was it. So when I came back a bit cleaner and uh, looking towards this beans on toast, um, Nina said, look, I've had, a, um, I've had a thought. You know, it's, it's raining um, and, and, you know, the snow will come, be worse. She said, there's no way you can stay here. She said, and there's no way I can send you away. She said, but there's a coal shed out the back right, that's been done up now, an old coal shed. She said, you can stay in there, but don't let anybody know you're there. She said, it's got, uh, you know, a little bit of heating and there, there's a bunk there. She said, but uh, please don't tell anybody that, uh, that I've put you up there. So, mate, that was the next part of the story. And I said, one more thing, one more thing. I said, please, uh, have you got a phone? I've, I've got a phone, my mum and dad, and tell them I'm safe. And, and it was um, reverse charges. Are you old enough to remember? The oh, reverse- my word. I've done that from all around the world. Don't there worry. So <laughs> under the stairs, there was a reverse charges phone. It was the first time I'd ever done it. 
um, because I was 15, never, never been overseas on my own. So, um, so I picked it up and, uh, uh, you know, took an hour to get the reverse charge. But when mum come on, she was like, oh, Craigus, Craigus. She said, are you safe? Are you safe, boy? And I said, yes, mum. Yes, mum, I'm safe. She said, are you in London? I said, no, I'm in Middlesbrough. I've had the trial. Colin, Colin, come to the phone. <laughs> right, he's had a trial. I said, yeah, and Jack Chart was there. Jack Chart was there. Jack Chart was there. <laughs> well, anyway, um, Dad came to the phone and uh, he said, G'day, lad. He said, Jackie Charlie. He said, What did Big Jack say? What did he say, son? I said, Dad, he said, I'm one of the finest players he's ever seen <laughs> and he wants me to stay. Right. And then I, I hung up, I hung up and burst into tears again. And, and Nina heard me and she came up and she cuddled me and she said, I'm so sorry, son. I'm so sorry. And I was just crying my eyes out like a baby. Uh, and that's, that's the, that was my introduction to British football. As I said, I'm happy to go for four hours, Craig, and that is a wonderful story. So where does it turn for you that you're the worst pro you've ever seen to the fact you're playing for Middlesbrough? How long does that take and how did it turn around for you? And then, as you said, you know, 690000 whatever it was, pound transfer to Liverpool. Like This is a boy's own uh, annual style story you're telling us here. So you're there, you're in the coal shed, you're flat. How do you get from there a couple of years later, really, to be playing in what was then, was it was it called First Division or League? Yeah, yeah, it was the Premier League, but yeah. it was the, the, yeah. the, the First Division it's called. But it was the Premier League, you know, Manchester United. They're yeah, all, it, it was the... Yeah, it was the yeah. So, so how does that in in two minutes? How does that happen? Well, well, I, well, I told you it, it's not about me. It's it's about the ball. And, I, and, I, I I get yeah. that. I, yeah. I I get that. But so you stayed in the UK that whole time, and you learnt your uh, trade then. Yes, yes, with with one exception, and I'll I'll tell you that in a bit. But yep. but but what then happened is then um, I would have to go down. Um, and some of the pros, the older professionals, like a guy called Graham Souness, yes, then became captain of, of of Liverpool and Scotland later on. And a guy called Terry Cooper, who was the left fullback for England in the nineteen sixty six World Cup winning team. These older pros heard about the roasting that Charlton gave me, right, and they felt sorry for me. So okay. so now and again, they they they'd come to the coal shed. And they'd slip a bit of, you know, cup of tea or or, or, or a bit of toast, and, and they'd laugh and they have a chuckle. And Graham liked Australia; he'd been here, you know, with mates on holiday. So, so anyway, everybody kind of knew I was there and didn't bother about me because they said if you clean our cars and clean our boots, we'll give you some money, so you've got enough money to pay yourself back home to Australia. No so, way. Yeah, yeah. So, so they they were good people. Everyone was a good person. Uh, Jack Charlton was a good person. But he had to make tough decisions in a hurry about who was good, and his job was yeah. being the manager, not being a charity. Gotcha. You know? And and there was no, uh, uh, what's the word now? Uh, Molly coddling. Uh, no, no. The, the, the mode of the day was bullying. It was pure on hundred percent brutal bullying. Um, but but you knew what that language was, and you knew you had to push past it. So. Uh, they, if they didn't bully me, right? Yeah, I, I, I bullied myself, right? So I would get up. I would start getting up at five o'clock rather than six o'clock. So I'd have two hours or three hours, right, of training before they got there. And then afterwards, 
right? I did the jobs. I would stay there for another three hours. So I, I was at Ayrson Park from seven till seven at night, right? And when I wasn't doing the jobs and making a bit of money, right, I was actually training. And there was this old car park that, hmm. where the players used to park, and one half of it was usually empty. And that half was basically the size of a penalty box, right? So I, being good at science and maths, I actually drew out an actual penalty box <laughs> and then I marked the goals and I painted them on the wall with paint and chalk. You know how big bigger goals are? Yeah. You know how big they are? Yeah, I don't know the exact dimensions. They're eight yards by eight feet, imperial measurement. So eight yards across and eight feet up. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, eight feet high by 24 feet wide. Right. right. A, a, a standard, standardised penalty box. Did you know that every soccer field in the world is a different size? No. Every single set. There's no standard size. Is there not? There's, there's, a, there's a standard maximum and a standard minimum and, and a fit- whopping differential. Okay. Right. But the standard penalty box is the same it's in the same. Zurich, in, in Switzerland, in uh, Maracanã, in Brazil. Gotcha. In, in the um, Sydney Football Stadium and in my one in Cooks Hill back here, Got and you. where I grew up, the boy from Bullaroo, mm-hmm. Lake Macquarie. So I took that standard penalty box and the goal, and I drew a six-yard box, 12-yard penalty spot, arc of the D. So now I had my own penalty spot, and I could create a mistake-to-attempt ratio with a standardised set of skills. So I basically did an obstacle course, a little bit like Ninja Warriors, where every day I could challenge myself to control, pass, dribble, shoot, because I figured out that's the only four skills every player on the Middlesbrough uh, first team did, and it's how fast and accurate they were at getting the ball and giving the ball was how efficient they were as a player. So I created a data set before that word had even been invented, right, which I called a mistake-to-attempt ratio. Wow. So I would draw crosses and I would put five boxes in the penalty. Um, I would draw five chalk uh, boxes and numbers on them and I had to hit them one, two, three, four, five from five standardised positions which were drawn in paint and I had five balls. And if I concentrated, if I concentrated totally, I could get everything done in about four and a half hours, all all my drills. Control, pass, dribble, shoot. All by if yourself? I, all by myself. Well, well, I, I wasn't allowed to be there. Jack had no. told me. So when he'd come into work in the morning, I would hide behind the cars and he would go in, right, and then I'd carry on. They'd all go to training, right, and I'd clean all the boots and do all of that stuff. When they came back, I'd hide again, right? So this went on for a long, long time. Craig, this is bloody extraordinary, extraordinary. Well, well, well here's, the cl- here's a clever bit. Here's the clever bit. So if I didn't concentrate, I was there for six hours. Now, Nina, right, and, and the apprentices, after I'd been there six or seven months, they said, no, nah, this, this kid's the cleaner, right? He deserves to come in. There's a spare bedroom in here. And they let me eat with them and they let me watch television with them. This is the young apprentices and the young pros. So you got out of the coal shed. I've got out the coal shed, yeah, yeah. So now I'm feeling like I've, I'm feeling like I'm royalty. I'm still not allowed because Charlton's there, so I'm still not allowed to train. But but I've been given the job as the cleaner, so I'm, I'm cleaning everyone's boots and cars and get paid for it. 
Long story short, long story short, I was creating a data set that if I, very important, that I, if I focused, I could get done in four and a half hours because I would hit my targets earlier without the repetition because I'd, I'd have to hit five in a row. If I didn't, if I only did three, hit three of the targets, I'd have to go back till I did five. So this mistake to attempt ratio was then quantified by the number of hours or then minutes that I could get home and sit and watch Coronation Street and eat baked beans and, 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 and uh, cheese with the apprentices that I loved. So, so I w- so wanted to be one of them or like them or with them. So I focused and focused and focused, and I was getting down to four hours. Now, that was data driven mm. by my efficacy with what part of foot on what part of ball to what effect. So then I started hitting the targets a lot more accurately. Then I went to the church and I stole some bench pews. Well, I borrowed them. I didn't steal them. Mm. You know bench pews? Yes. And I, I laid them like this sideways. I, actually, I, I laid them like this sideways, and I would hit the ball off the pew, get it back, hit it, hit it there, hit it there, hit it, hit there. And with a bit of paint, I drew a one-by-one-foot square, so I had to hit the square. And if I hit the rest of the pew, that was a mistake. So that was short-term contr- control. And then I got garbage cans, and I put them like this, and I dribbled in and out of the garbage cans. Then in between the... Um, the, the, the butt on the wall, mm-hmm. I stood in here and I'd keep the ball up, hitting the targets on the wall without the ball dropping on my chest, on my knee. So then I got this beautiful touch and feel, right, of the ball by doing all of these things within four hours. Now, what I was creating was data. So what I was doing, I could then, if I wanted to, I could be a better soccer player at night than when I woke up in the morning at five o'clock yeah. because that meant I got home earlier because my soccer homework had been done in a more efficient, efficient manner. I've never, I've never heard an athlete describe their improvement in mathematical research terms the way you have described that. I find that quite extraordinary. I find that quite extraordinary. Well, well you'll, you'll find it in yourself because you practice in the backyard Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I told you, I, I, I looked at Don Bradman, I looked at Pele. I did, I did all the stuff I could to, to know why great, great sportsmen did great things. And apart from the gift that God gives you, he didn't give me a natural ability to play sport. He gave me a natural ability to think and solve mm. problems. And it was a problem. Um, and I solved it, but I got into the joy. And here's the magic, you know, the the, 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 the clever bit is the maths and the science and, and creating data when it didn't exist. And I had no app. You know, I had no pen. I just knew I loved baked beans with the boys watching Coronation Street and it started at 6.30. And if I didn't get home, I missed the start. I was spewing. So my, my uh, modus operandi or my, um, you know, motivation, motivation. was to be a better player because that's why I was there because I was homesick. I was crying my eyes out. I wanted to go home and be with mum and dad and, and, and my sisters, my two sisters and my mates, right? But, but I couldn't, you know, because I didn't have the fare and because I, I, I fell in love with now with the touch. I fell in love with like, like a great tennis player falls in love with his touch, the subtlety of touch. That's why we're sportsmen because we, we, 
we love what we do and it comes across. Um, and I know my story is a good one because it's not just about hard work. That I had blood on my feet some nights. Hard work is embedded into Newcastle people. Yes, you it know, is. Working class ethos. That's a given, hard work. But clever work and benchmarks to beat on a day. And we've all done it, mate. Everybody, you know, I speak to Bosnich, I speak to Slater, mate, mate, uh, Harry Kuehl, all these blokes, um, uh, Timmy Cahill. They've all done my story too. That's why they recognise it. They recognise it. I, I can vocalise it now, you know, years later. And you know why I'm vocalising it? Because I want to pass on these tricks and ways of getting better for today's kids because today's kids don't, don't like hard work, right? They don't like adversity, you know, and they've got to learn that you've got to be tough if you want to do something major with yourself in your life. But the, be the beautiful thing about this description and the size of this platform that we're lucky enough to have now, Craig, is there will kids listen to this and they will compute this and they will go away and they'll think, right, how can I bring that to what I'm doing, which is in some ways the aim of this podcast. So at what point does your man, Jack Charlton, say, hang on, this bloke that I said is the worst player I've ever seen, I've probably seen him occasionally in the car park doing this unfathomable stuff for all hours of the day. At what point does he say, all right, young bloke, come and have a second crack at it? He doesn't. He, gets he doesn't. He doesn't. He gets transferred to uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Or he gets, right. He gets bought by Sheffield Wednesday to be their new manager, right? And, uh, you know, uh, I don't So who know. does open that door for you then? Well, well, what what happened is is Big Jack got transferred and then uh, Middlesbrough uh, uh, got a new manager called John Neal. And mm -hmm. John Neal was a was a lovely um, a Welshman um, and... Uh, a lo 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 lovely little guy, and uh, you know, um, when he first came to work, you know, I said, "Park over here, Mister Neil. I'll wash your car." And he said, "Oh, are, are you the um, the car cleaner?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "How come you've got the Middlesbrough tracksuit on?" I said, "Oh, I get paid um, with soccer boots and uh, and tracksuits. That's how the players pay me, uh, you know, and I get a little bit of money too." And he said, he said, that's very funny. You know, I said, yeah, it's smart, isn't it? You know? So um, anyway, he's gone in the dressing room and uh, basically um, about a month after he'd been there, um, there was um, a virus that swept through the club. So in the, the, the junior team, right, they didn't have enough players to, um, to put on the field. Wow. So, so they, they were going to forfeit the game. And then um, John Neal said, well, what about the kangaroo in the car park? You the know, kangaroo um, in the car park. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they call me, the kangaroo in the car park. And, and the players said, well, no, he's, he's uh, rubbish, you know. Mm -hmm. so, um, so John Neal went, oh. And then he said, but, but hang on a sec, he doesn't actually have to play. He can just be on the team sheet so you don't have to forfeit the game. They said, oh, what a good idea. You know, that's what a new manager's for. So any, next thing I know, I'm on the bus. And for months and months, um, I'd been practicing on the arc of the D, right? You know the arc of the yeah. D on the soccer field? I do. I would put one ball at the end and one ball at the other end of the arc of the D, one in the middle, and then I'd split the difference. So now I've got five standardized positions on the arc of the D, and I would chip the crossbar. 
And I could do that in Sydney Harbour. I could do it here in Newcastle. I could do it in Florence, in Inter Milan. I could do it anywhere in the world. It's standardised. So I'd been chipping the crossbar, left foot, right foot. Hitting the crossbar? Hitting the crossbar. Yep. Yeah, 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 with a chip. So it's your subtlety of getting your foot under that ball and there's a beautiful sort of lift that then floats onto the crossbar. That's top backspin. So anyway, long story short, uh, uh, then I would throw the ball against this wall over there. Yeah. One bounce, it would bounce up and then I would volley it at one of the five targets. Right, do it again, bounce, one touch, folly. Anyway, so months and months and months. So now again, You're on the bus. Out of nowhere, on the way to Scarborough, right, uh, again it's raining, um, <laughs> getting beat 2-0 at half time, um, and one of the players gets really, really injured. So it's half time. They said, you're going to have to come on. And that was never the plan for me to come on, you know, uh, so uh, anyway, I, I did come on. Um, How'd you feel? How'd you feel? Like the, the, what well, well, you've well, led through it. How'd you feel when they said, "Come and have a kick for it for the first time"? I felt sick in the stomach, like like you know when you feel so nervous that you, you're going to vomit. That's how I felt. Anyway, I came on right, and, and believe it or not, I scored it. I chip. I chipped the goalkeeper right, and I scored a volley with my right foot. So you so, scored twice. Yes. Yes, so, so we didn't lose, right? And therefore, um, uh, no way. I was immediately embraced by everybody, uh, and everybody knew me now as the kangaroo in the car park. And uh, and then after that game, right? They they offered me a contract um, after that one game. Yeah, an apprentice contract. Um, and I think because I I come out of the car park now, and people knew I was there, and uh, you know, and and I play well. You know, this is the thing because what I did is I got the ball quickly and I gave it before anybody could kick me. So through all that time, just just one question from my end, from all that time when you're learning and teaching and mathematically working your way through the game, were you able to play a game anywhere in that period of time or were you just playing by yourself? Yes, yes, I, I was, I was. And here's the other beautiful, beautiful story in the middle of that. Um, and, and, again, j- just to finish the story about yes. uh, my first game. Yes, so please they do. they offered me a contract, and this was Harold Shepherdson, uh, offered me a contract, and it was £14 a week. So now, right, I was an official apprentice at Middlesbrough, which is, you know, what the trialists do usually after one day. But it, it had taken me a year and a half, if, if not more, to get there, but four, five, six hours a day with the skills. So when you say playing football, football is made up of skills. Skills and touch. And if you can get the ball quicker, then you can look up quicker mm. and see who's around you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is about, is about time. Any sport is about time. You know, a quick bowler, right, is quick because he cuts down the batsman's ability to look and see where it's going. Gotcha. So all sport is, it's not about the sport. It's about the ABC, the reading, writing, arithmetic. And I always knew that because in studying to come first in science, maths, and English, I knew you had to do the basics to understand the, the languages. So that was my training that mum forced upon me or I forced upon myself to get mum to sell the house. <laughs> not, not, not to sell the house, to pay my fare. Mum's idea to sell the house, mum and dad's idea. So it all goes back to doing my soccer homework, but I figured out how to do it 
and how to get that uh, adjustment. So what I was going to say to you is that now and again then when I'd finish cleaning the toilets or the boots or the, 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 the gym or something, right, and, and one or two of the lads, they would come into the car park with me. So then we'd have a one-on-one or a two-on-two or a three-on-three or we'd have a chip-the-crossbar competition. Gotcha. So, so that way I, I created a little culture at Middlesbrough that was a culture of guys saying, you know, I'm not going to the pub today or I'm not going to the cinema or I'm not hanging out with the boys on the street corner. I'm here doing the soccer thing. So, so I still wasn't allowed to train with the, the, the pro setup or the, the, the amateur, the, um, the team, the team. But on the way home at about 7 o'clock at night from Ayrson Park to my digs, um, um, the Medhurst Hotel, <laughs> I would go up Ayrson Park Road, which was cobblestone streets and gas, gas lamps, and there was always a pick-up game with the young scruffy kids. And we're talking about 13, 14, maybe 15-year-old, mm. and there was, you know, 20, 25 of them. So it was a rabble of little, you know, scruffy little kids, right, screaming and shouting in the shadow of one side, the factories in, um, in, in Middlesbrough, not on the other side, Ayrson Park. And, you know, it's, it's like a movie, right, but lit with gas lamps. So anyway, a couple of times I walked past, again, with my Middlesbrough uh, sh- jumper on, uh, tracksuit top, and they'd say, oh, look, he's from the Burra. He's from the Burra. Hey, mister, mister, come and play with us. And, and they said, do you play in the youth team? And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm the cleaner, you know. And they said, well, come and play with us anyway. <laughs> so I did. This, this is the first couple of weeks, two or three weeks I'm there. Anyway, these, these little guys just were so good, they completely took the, the mickey out of me. They'd nutmeg me, right, backwards, forwards. They laughed and laughed and laughed. And they called me Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, and that's where the name came from. <laughs> they'd, they'd all seen it on the television. And, and I, I'd, I'd come over on my way home and I'd start singing, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. They call him Skippy. Skippy, Skippy, the bush came. So anyway, they'd laugh and laugh and laugh. So on my way home, that's who I'd play with. And that's where I, uh, and, and again, these kids were good and it was tough and they didn't take any prisoners. But that's when I, I, I learned, you know, how to use the elbow. You know how to how to you know set yourself up in a game situation. So a lovely lovely back into that. Um, I've talked about how I uh, got better on a daily basis with my touch and feel, then better on the daily basis with whether I should stand with the little kids. Um, is when I made my debut for uh, for Middlesbrough, um, and that's a lovely story, but it's a bit long, so won't bother right now. But um, as I was walking off. We played Everton um, in the FA Cup. I think it was the fourth round. And I, it was my first ever game. And I played really, really well. And we won. No one can say Craig had it easy. For those 18 months, while he trained alone, hiding away from Big Jack, he washed players' cars and cleaned their boots to pay the rent. He didn't dare tell his parents he hadn't made it. But it all paid off eventually with the first team start against Everton. So as we were walking off, I was, I was mocked. Right, and I was mobbed, and not by my Middlesbrough teammates, the first team. I was mobbed by the scruffy little Middlesbrough mates from out the front. At uh, oh, gives me shivers down my, my spine. Uh, 
just thinking about it. And uh, they were all over me. They were all over me because, again, they were all better than me at one stage, but they watched they watched the progress and they uh, – uh, so I've got, a, I've got a, a newspaper clipping somewhere and it was the Sun newspaper. And uh, I've got these kids all over me, you know, the, my kids, you know, and I, I, I got to know them all as their nicknames and they were all scully lag wags and they would pinch from shops and stuff like that. You know, everybody did something wrong back then, you know, there was never mm. jobs like there are now. And uh, so they're all characters and, uh, uh, and the headline, the headline next to it, I, I really had a good game and I'd love to get some footage of that one day, but um, the headline was Jack Charlton. I always knew the kangaroo would make it. <laughs> Can you believe that? Can you believe that? I always knew the kangaroo would make it. You need at some stage, if you find that, to take a photo on your phone and send it to me. I would love to see yeah, that. Yeah, it's in, in one of these rooms somewhere. I've got all my stuff back from Middlesbrough, from Liverpool, and it's all, all here with me now, uh, everywhere from all over the world. It's all here in this little little place, and the hospital's right next door, so... I've come full full degrees, 360, back to where it started. Can I take you? People are going to be blown away when they listen to this. Can I take you to Liverpool mate, now? if they're still awake. No, mate. They. <laughs> this is um, It's an extraordinary approach to sport, which I said I've never heard before and I've worked in this caper for a while. It, it, can I take you to Liverpool? It, it's not extraordinary. It's not extraordinary. It's, well, it's common uh, sense. It's absolute basic common sense. But it's very unconventional. No, it's not. Everybody does it, but but I had to do it more robustly and I had to go into it deeper because you you talk about a fish out of water story. Mm. Mate, I was an Aussie kid 12,000 miles away with no money, no skill, no nothing, no nothing except a good attitude, 15-year-old, a good attitude and a love, a love that I got in a hospital bed, as I, I told you, yeah. for this, this perfect object. And I wanted to be one of these players, one of these, one of these kids. You know, I just wanted to do what they wanted to do. So there was love, there was understanding of, of, of problem solving. And, and everybody does it in their own little way. But because I was so far away, disconnected from from had I stayed in Australia, I'd, I'd have been probably lucky to make you know the Lake Macquarie seniors. I'd have been happy with that, and I'd have been you know maybe like Maddie John to be a podcaster now yourself. Yeah, you, you know because I like stories. I could tell stories. I like like other people's stories. Yeah, you'd be you know, a great and, podcaster. And, and and that's half the battle, by the way. By the way, you, yeah, y- yes, yes, really important. Um, how we really important is is I figured out that the technical side, but, mate, I was also a good kid. And this is fundamental because the taxi, the bloke in London recognised a good kid, right? The bloke that sent me to, from Middlesbrough to Hutton Road recognised. The taxi, Nina Post, she felt sorry for me and she she would not have thrown me out had she not recognised a mm. good kid, right? And even Jack Charlton, years later, I, I, I've caught up with him and his son. And uh, I had some lovely, lovely times with him. You know, and he's a very good man, Jack. Just hard, old-fashioned hard. So you've got to be a good kid as well. That that you've got to got to have a good attitude, you know. And uh, I, I I think you know that intrinsically, which is why people like speaking to you. And that's the other thing about Maddie Johns. Maddie Johns a cheeky little monkey, 
you enjoy his company yeah. and he's, he's good to talk to, you know, and uh, uh, these stories are important, you know, and I think kids are hearing less and less of these stories. Well, I'm glad you said that because the kids will hear that. And this, this will have a massive impact on people, Craig. I can assure you I will get message after message after message on social media from people that are going to apply this in a business sense in their work or saying I sat there and listened to my kids and it opened up a whole other dimension. So I am extremely thankful that you have the time and the ability to put it into words. That's the end of Craig Johnston Part A. Flip to the second half on Part B. Listener.